Hello everyone and welcome to PA Study Sesh. I'm your host McKenna Morgan and this week we'll be doing a mixture of topics which I'm going to call a cardio conglomeration. Alright everybody, welcome back again. Uh, This week we're kind of rounding off our cardio chapter aside from pharmacology. So we have what's called the other forms of heart disease. We're going to be talking about acute pericarditis, bacterial endocarditis, pericardial effusion, and cardiac tamponade. We're also going to discuss cardiogenic shock and orthostatic hypotension. You will notice that I left off vasovagal hypotension. Uh, I think it's going to be best discussed with syncope. So we'll just leave that there for later. Uh, Before we begin, I want to give a shout out to Izzy. He listens to us on Spotify, but he gives some great feedback on a Facebook post. So again, thank you, Izzy, for your great feedback. So let's begin with some questions. What are the three components of Beck's triad? They are muffled heart sounds, increased JVP, jugulovenous pressure, and hypotension. Define orthostatic hypotension. And this is a 20 millimeters of mercury drop in systolic or a 10 millimeters of mercury drop in diastolic blood pressure from lying or sitting to standing. What is a Janeway lesion? This is a painless erythematous macule on the palms or soles and this is associated with bacterial endocarditis. Okay. So we're going to go ahead and we'll just dive in and we'll start with acute pericarditis. This is an inflammation, it's an itis of the pericardium. Peri means around, so this is the layer around the heart. The number one cause here is viral. However, I also want you to be familiar with the term Dressler syndrome. And this is post-MI pericarditis. You may hear that as well. Symptoms here, it's a sharp pain. It's pleuritic, meaning it's worse with inspiration. It may radiate to the back and it's improved with leaning forward. On physical exam, you'll have what's called a pericardial friction rub. And this is best heard at end expiration when upright and leaning forward. And this is all just about bringing the anatomy as close to the stethoscope as possible. All it is upright, leaning forward, brings the heart forward. Okay, simple so far. Diagnosis a couple ways to do this on EKG, you will have diffuse ST elevations. Know that, love that. Diffuse ST elevations goes with acute pericarditis. Um, You'll also want to get an echo to assess for effusion or tamponade, which are going to be our next two topics. These are kind of a spectrum of disease. Uh, Treatment here, NSAIDs for 7 to 14 days. This is pain and inflammation, and it's caused by a virus, so they don't need antibiotics. And we're going to favor aspirin if they have Dressler syndrome. Think aspirin, MI, kind of go together. All right. So moving on to the more, the next step in acute pericarditis, you can have acute pericarditis with an effusion. So 
Next topic is pericardial effusion. This is fluid in the pericardial space. It's most often caused by pericarditis. And on physical exam, they'll have muffled heart sounds. So imagine you're underwater. Things just don't sound as good. Um, so that makes a lot of sense. Diagnosis on EKG, you'll have low voltage QRS complexes. And remember, everything's just kind of muffled. That's how I remember these. Uh, you may also have this phenomenon called electrical alternance. What it is, it's the QRS complex amplitude will alternate in size. So it'll be really short and then it'll be tall. It'll be short and then tall. A fun fact is it's thought to be due to heart motion. And that kind of makes sense. The heart is a lot easier to move when it's floating in water versus being surrounded by a tight pericardium. So as it bobs back and forth, makes it easier or less easy for the EKG to pick up that current. Okay. Now remember this is electrical alternance starts at effusion. Um, you don't necessarily need a chest x-ray for diagnosis, but typically when you have a patient with chest pain, you're automatically going to get one. And these patients may have cardiomegaly. Management here, you're going to treat the underlying cause, which remember is usually pericarditis. If we can remember from just a second ago, treatment was NSAIDs. Okay. If it's a really large effusion, we're going to do what's called a pericardiocentesis. It means we're going to poke it and drain it. Again, this is only if it's large or if it's causing tamponade. If it's not, conservative and just watch and wait. All right. So I just used the word tamponade. What is pericardial tamponade? This is an effusion causing pressure on the heart leading to decreased cardiac output. So it's still an effusion, but it's an effusion that is causing more serious problems. There is so much pressure that that heart can no longer relax and um, refill those chambers. So again, decreased cardiac output. On physical exam, you'll have Beck's triad. And how I remember that Beck's triad goes with tamponade and not with effusion or with pericarditis is that tamponade has a triad. T has a T. And Beck's triad, I do recommend that you know it, love it, uh, is muffled heart sounds, which again, we already had an effusion, increased jugulovenous pressure, which makes sense. Because if your heart is not being able to refill itself, the blood's just going to back up. And you'll see that in the um, jugular vein. And then hypotension. All right. Um, another little note for boards. It's possible that they'll have a question that's going to be like, what are the three components of Beck's triad? It's, it is possible. More likely, I think... Prepare yourself for a question stem that has a patient with pleuritic chest pain that's very sharp, sharp being the key word here, but then they will have, they'll say, oh, they have muffled heart sounds, their JVP is increased, their blood pressure is 90 over 60. So none of these things particularly says that they have Beck's triad in the question, but their symptoms that the question stem gave you basically just told you that they have Beck's triad and therefore that they have pericardial tamponade, not just 
pericarditis with a pericardial effusion. Does that make sense? So when you're going through those questions, you'll be like, oh, okay, this is what's making this patient stable versus unstable, which will then change your treatment, obviously. Just don't plan to memorize the triad. That is important. But be able to recognize in a big, long list of symptoms that, hey, this patient has this triad. That's what I'm trying to say. Another uh, symptom here associated with pericardial tamponade is pulsus paradoxus. And this is a greater than 10 millimeters of mercury decrease in systolic blood pressure with inspiration. Um, normally, the blood pressure does decrease, but it's normally less than 10 millimeters of mercury. Uh, diagnosis. Again, we're looking at structure. We're looking for fluid. We're looking at an echo. And treatment, again, it's a very large effusion, so they're going to get a pericardiocentesis. Okay. That was three diseases in about nine minutes. Not bad. Uh, moving on, this one's kind of a funky topic. Um, wasn't quite sure how I wanted to talk about it, but more just kind of getting you familiar with it is cardiogenic shock. And this is decreased cardiac output leading to uh, tissue hypoxia, but despite adequate blood volume. If you have low blood volume, then you're in hypovolemic shock. Uh, different treatment for that. Um, another symptom that seems to be associated with cardiogenic shock is that they'll have hypotension with increased pulmonary capillary wedge pressure. Uh, etiology here, I think it's just things that decrease cardiac output. So heart attacks, myocarditis, congenital heart diseases, cardiomyopathy, arrhythmias, valvular disease. Literally, most of this entire chapter of uh, PA study sesh has been things that could cause cardiogenic shock if severe enough. So, um, I do want to put a note that cardiac tamponade is a form of obstructive shock, not cardiogenic shock. Even though it's coming from the heart itself, it's coming from it being squeezed and blocked versus the heart function itself. Uh, so just don't get tripped up there. Management for cardiogenic shock, oxygen. This is an issue of hypoxia, so we're going to give them air. Isotonic fluids, so normal saline. Small amounts only because they have enough volume. It's the only type of shock in which you don't give large amounts of volume. Um, and then inotropic support. These are things that help the heart beat stronger, such as dobutamine and epinephrine. And then we're just going to treat the underlying cause. You know, if they're having an MI, we're going to treat that. If they have a valve problem, we're going to treat that. Again, kind of an interesting thing to have on the topic list, but there it was. All right. Uh, moving on to hypotension, the one the boards are picking on is orthostatic hypotension. The definition, as I said in our question, was a 20 millimeters of mercury fall in systolic or a 10 millimeters of mercury fall in diastolic. This is just like our hypertension guidelines, except for going down instead of up. So systolic still goes in blocks of 20, diastolic goes in blocks of 10 easy. Guidelines I sh looked at were looking from lying or sitting to a standing position didn't seem to be consistent. This one is really just more of a building a differential diagnosis. 
Um, there could be some autonomic dysfunction, such as neuropathy or Parkinson's. Um, they could be volume depleted. I can think of oodles of reasons. Hot Arizona day, malnutrition, vomiting, all sorts of things there. Medication, often blood pressure medications can cause orthostatic hypotension. So look at that. So uh, work up and treat appropriately. Final topic and our biggest topic of today is endocarditis, saving the big bad bear for last. Endo means inside, so this is all the things inside the heart. This includes the valves. This is an inflammation of the valves. It's actually an infection as well. Uh, mitral valve is the number one valve effective. Mitral is most. The exception being IV drug users in which the tricuspid valve is the most common affected. And how I remember this is that the veins encounter the tricuspid valve first. So if you have an IV drug user, um, I always think that the blood from their IV drug is going through the veins and hits the tricuspid valve first. Make sense? For most people, mitral valve. All right. All right. Number one, pathogens a.k.a. the bugs. I do think it's really important that you know these uh, for several reasons. Number one being there could be a straight-up question that is, what is the number one pathogen for X? Number two, um, it'll help you determine your treatment. And number three, for this particular question, it'll also help us remember uh, when we need prophylaxis. So here's what they are. For normal valves, the number one bug is Staph aureus. For IV drug abusers, the number one bug is methicillin-resistant Staph aureus, MRSA. IV drug abusers, it's worse, they get a worse bug. Now, for abnormal valves, theirs is a bug called Strep viridens. And Strep viridens, I actually think is, for lack of a better term, a weaker bug. Um, which makes sense because you have a weaker valve that can't fight off the bug. Now, an abnormal valve and a prosthetic valve are not the same thing. When I was looking at prosthetic valves, some had separated it into early and late. I decided I couldn't find a consistent answer for early, so I'm going to eliminate that confusion and just put normal with prosthetic valves because they follow the same bug and do staph aureus, okay? All right, I'm gonna repeat that again. Normal and prosthetic valves, staph aureus. IV drug abusers are worse, they get a worse bug, MRSA. Abnormal valves are weaker, they get a weaker bug, strep viridens, okay? All right, symptoms of bacterial endocarditis. Fever, this is an infection, they have a fever. All right, now the fun buzzwords. Roth spots. These are retinal hemorrhages. And I remember R for retinal and Roth. Next up, we have Osler's nodes. And these are tender nodules on the pads of the digits. And these are O for Osler and O for nodules. All right, number three, we also have Janeway lesions. These were in our warm-up questions. These are painless 
erythematous macules on the palms and soles. This will come full circle as we progress through the podcast, but this is one of the few diseases that affects the palms and soles. Um, we'll talk more about that in derm, but if you hear anything that affects palms and soles, this could be one of them. We also have splinter hemorrhages and petechiae. So the petechiae, the splinter hemorrhages, and the Janeway lesions, it's all your body throwing these little tiny clots from the heart valve. That makes sense. That's always how I kind of thought about those, is there's all of this bacterial growth on the heart valve. There's going to be all these little tiny little clots that occur around all that vegetation, and your body's going to toss them out everywhere, and that's they're going to go to the end, and that's where they're going to um, be manifested at. Diagnosis of bacterial endocarditis. You want to get three sets of blood cultures one hour apart prior to the initiation of antibiotics. Makes sense that it's prior because if you start killing the bacteria, then your blood culture is not going to be positive. Makes sense. Also want to get an echo. We're looking at the structure of the heart. We want to look at those heart valves. We're going to see if there's any vegetation. If there's any abscesses, again, this is all bacterial growth and nastiness, or if there's a new valve regurgitation. Quick note here about Duke criteria. You guys are probably getting tired of hearing me say things you don't need to study that sound super duper important, but maybe not. Uh, this happens to be another one of them, and, and here's why. Uh, anyway, for starters, here's what Duke criteria are. It's just a combination of clinical criteria to determine that you have um, infective endocarditis, and it's a combination of whether you have two major and one, ma one major, three minor, or five minor criteria. Personally, it's not that hard to memorize, but why? If you have a question stem that implies that you have Janeway lesions, Roth spots, you have a positive blood culture and a fever, that right there pretty much tells you that they have endocarditis. And also, this is a multiple-choice exam, so depending on what your question is, it may already assume that you're gathering that they have infective endocarditis. So I just don't think it's like worth the effort to memorize exactly what each minor criteria are and which combination is it two, is it one and three, is it five. It's, I just don't think it's worth it when you have um, the multiple-choice setup as well as the literally paragraph set of questions that the pants offers. Um, again, is it possible that they'll ask you how many Duke criteria does this satisfy? Maybe, but is it probably a low value question? Yeah, so take that as you will, but um, that's my opinion on it. Also, remembering too that I'm giving you information of things that are very specific to endocarditis. Obviously, they have an infection, so they would probably get the full workup of a CBC, CMP. You know, they'll have an elevated SED rate. But we know how specific that is, so um, keep that in mind too. So the boards might give you that information, but here's the things I'm wanting you to clue in on is those blood cultures and that echo. Okay? All right. Enough rambling there. So diagnosis, blood cultures, three sets times one hour apart, and an echo looking for vegetation abscess, basically bacterial growth. Treatment here. Treatments are based off the type of valve affected. 
These are all times four to six weeks. So we'll start with normal valves. Normal valves are nafcillin plus gentamicin. Abnormal valves are penicillin or ampicillin plus gentamicin. Prosthetic valves are vancomycin plus gentamicin plus rifampin. Okay, so that was a lot of drug names and that was really exhausting because we haven't covered antibiotics. So, narrowing this down. Staph gets covered by penicillin. Okay? So all of those have some sort of psyllin in them except for vancomycin. However, Vancomycin is what we use if there is a penicillin allergy or if we suspect MRSA. So same thing, if we have an IV drug user and we have a, a MRSA positive culture in any type of valve really, um, we're going to go for Vanco. Everybody gets gentamicin, it covers a different type of bacteria. And then prosthetic valves get rifampin. Again, anything that's been replaced we really don't want to get infected, they get extra drugs. Does that make sense? Everybody starts with gentamicin. Everybody gets some sort of psyllin, unless it's MRSA, unless they have an allergy, or if they have a prosthetic valve, then they get Vanco. Also, if they have a prosthetic valve, they get rifampin. All right, hopefully that treatment wasn't too scary. Moving on to prophylaxis. There are a few heart conditions, one of which is a history of endocarditis in which these patients will need antibiotic prophylaxis for life. These procedures, or conditions I should say, are if they have a prosthetic heart valve or material, except for a stent, a history of endocarditis, or if they have congenital heart disease. So procedures where antibiotic prophylaxis are indicated are major dental procedures, and we're talking beyond the basic cleaning, skin or musculoskeletal procedures, and respiratory procedures. And that's anything that involves any respiratory mucosa, and that's including the nose, the bronchus, any of that. So uh, this is where it's helpful to know your bugs. So dental procedures. Strep viridens lives in the mouth and that's our number one cause of endocarditis in abnormal valves. So prophylaxis for that. Skin and muscle is where Staph aureus comes from. See where I'm going here? Respiratory procedures there's kind of two here. Um, again, we're in that nose, mouth, throat area, so we're going to have strep viridens again. Um, we didn't talk about this, but haemophilus, in terms of the lungs, is also a cause of endocarditis. Um, just kind of throwing that in there as well. So, the drug of choice that we use for prophylaxis is amoxicillin, 2 grams, 30 to 60 minutes prior to their procedure. If they're allergic, they get a macrolide. In this case, it's clindamycin. And again, we always want to think macrolide if they have a penicillin allergy.
Okay. feel like it went a little bit fast this time. I apologize. Um, hopefully that all made sense. Um, again, pastudyses at gmail.com if you guys have any questions. All right, let's do some questions. Which valve is most commonly affected in endocarditis in non-IV drug users? This is the mitral valve. What disease is associated with diffuse ST elevations on EKG? This is acute pericarditis. What is the most common etiology of acute pericarditis? This is a viral etiology. Notice I did not tell you which virus. That's okay, just know it's viral. Okay, five takeaway points from today. Staph infections of the methicillin-sensitive kind can be treated with a second-generation penicillin, aka penicillinase-resistant penicillin such as nafcillin, oxacillin, cloxacillin, dicloxacillin, and methicillin. That's all staph infections of any sort. MRSA equals vanco, vancomycin, always. MRSA equals vancomycin. Number three, R for Ross spots and retina, O for Osler and nodules. Number four, Beck's triad for tamponade. Tamponade has a triad. Muffled heart sounds, increased JVP, and hypotension. And number five, know your number one bugs. For endocarditis, for normal valves, they are Staph aureus. For IV drug users, it's MRSA. For abnormal valves, Strep viridens. All right, and that is everything as far as blueprint topics for cardio. As I said, next week we're gonna be doing some pharmacology since I kind of breezed by that as we were going along. As always, if you have any questions, feel free to send me an email at pastudysesh at gmail.com. Um, they don't have to be podcast related. You can email me anything about being a PA, etc. Head on over to our Facebook page. We are at PA Study Sesh on Facebook. I would greatly appreciate it if you could rate and review us on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever you are listening to this podcast right now. Share us with your friends shout us out on social media um that's the best way for me to grow and for us to help the most number of students as always this podcast is for you so i need all the feedback i can get i appreciate those of you who have given feedback so uh thank you so much for that i'd like to thank lee recevere for the use of his songs tech toys and curiosity as the intro outro and question portions of this podcast also if you guys head on over to the resources page there are some great pigmonics for endocarditis, pericarditis, Duke criteria if you feel so inclined to know it, as well as all of the antibiotics mentioned in today's episode. If you head on over to the resources page and use the link there, you will receive 20% off your subscription. So highly recommend them. You can read my review there as well. So as I mentioned, next week we are going to be doing the final episode of cardiology with cardiac drugs. So thank you guys for tuning in and I'll be talking with you next week.